0: and search for themodernwest.org. And find the Donate button. It doesn't matter how much you commit to, $5 or $100. It just matters that you show us that you want us to keep telling these stories. My recommendation? Pause this episode and do it real quick before you forget at themodernwest.org. November is Native American Heritage Month, and in recognition we thought we'd re-release the first episode of our third season, Shall Furnish Medicine. In it, we connect the dots between the spread of European diseases among Indigenous communities when Europeans first arrived, and we examine what that history of genocide meant when the COVID-19 pandemic struck home. This episode, The Great Dying, recently won a couple of big awards. A regional Edward R. Murrow Award for Best News Documentary, and a National Public Media Journalism Association Award for Best Long Documentary. Kudos to reporters Savannah Marr and Taylor Stagner. Hope you enjoy. At the beginning of the pandemic, one of my co-workers, Savannah Marr, submitted a story about how the tribes on the Wind River Reservation were stepping up to manage rising cases. I don't remember the details. Maybe the tribes imposed a curfew or started mass testing and contact tracing or offered quarantine housing at the casino. Whatever it was, they were measures that the rest of Wyoming was definitely not adopting. Mm -hmm. It was just one of a slew of stories Savannah was juggling. I remember sitting down for her edit, and we had this really interesting conversation. Before Savannah, the Wind River Reservation had been my beat for years. I had covered it through a lot of changes in the tribal health care system, and had come to realize that the history of disease and health in Indian country was missing from most coverage of the pandemic. Or worse, journalists were misrepresenting that history. So I encouraged Savannah to include some of this history in her story. But we couldn't figure out how to do it properly. It was just too darn complicated to stuff inside a breaking news piece. So we left all that history on the editing room floor. But I kept thinking about that pile of history. I couldn't shake it off. Especially because the infection rates on reservations just kept going up and up. The worst disparity rates of any ethnic group. But the response from tribes across the country, they just kept getting tougher and tougher. In Wyoming, a third of all the testing was being conducted by the northern Arapaho. So I picked up the phone and called Savannah. Let's do this, I said. Let's tell the story of pandemics in Indian country from the beginning. The very beginning. From Wyoming Public Media and PRX, this is The Modern West, exploring the evolving identity of the American West. I'm Melody Edwards. But telling this story was going to be a big job. Luckily, right about then, our colleague Taylor Stagner, a descendant from both tribes on Wind River, moved home to report on tribal affairs. Taylor said... Yeah, she was on board. So this season, Savannah and Taylor and I, we're going to connect the dots for you. Between the arrival of diseases on ships coming from all over Europe, all the way through COVID-19, Savannah Mars Tribe, the Mashpee Wampanoag, experienced those very first diseases and their devastating impacts. So I'll let her start us off.
1: It's high tide on Waquoit Bay. I'm sitting in a canoe, and my Uncle Rusty is pulling me along behind him as he wades up to his chest.
2: Oh, there's plenty of rockweed here. Nobody, Nobody hit this spot.
1: Rockweed is a type of algae that clings to rocks and dock pilings along the shore of this bay. It's full of air pockets that cause it to float on the surface of the water and make it look sort of like green, slimy bubble wrap.
2: This is nice-looking rockweed, too. It's nice and wet and fresh. The tide's been washing it back and forth. It's clean. It's going to be full of salt water.
1: We're gathering rockweed to prepare for an Wampanoag, which is the Wampanoag word for what we now call a clam bake. The rockweed will serve a dual purpose. First, as our cooking surface... We'll toss it onto a pile of piping hot rocks to insulate our dinner from the heat.
2: And it will also uh, give it nice flavor. As the rockweed is cooking, it'll steam up and cause the clams and the lobsters and everything like that to cook.
1: Rusty is pulling rockweed from the bay by the fistful and tossing it into the canoe where it's piling up at my feet.
2: I I started doing this with my first time I went with my father. I was probably about... Five or six years old. And he was doing most of the gathering. And we were just doing what Weekie's doing.
1: Weekinoshka is Rusty's granddaughter who's playing on the beach. Waiting on shore. Mm-hmm.
2: Hanging around in a boat like this. And we didn't even worry about what life vests then. We just, we were just, uh, Hang out in the boat and the, all, all the fishermen would be out there gathering the rockweed and everything like that, or clams.
1: <laughs> Rusty's kids are the fishermen today. On the other side of the bay, they're digging clams for the bake. I've
2: got a rake here that's got, you know, hey, a little rake out. and a little basket basket on it. And, um, yeah, just drag it through the sand.
1: My cousin Miles jostles the rake around until he feels some weight drop into the basket.
2: And as I drag it through the sand, the, uh, the rake picks up the quahogs and then they fall back into the basket. And when I pull it back out of the water, I just grab out the quahogs and put them in my bag, empty out the rest of it, and go again. I just drop the basket in.
1: Standing out here in the bay with my dirty feet, the salt of the ocean starting to collect on my skin, this is where I feel the most like myself and where I feel the most Wampanoag. The fish and the clams and the mussels of this bay have been feeding Wampanoag people and keeping us strong and healthy for a really long time.
3: Our people have been here for, well, what can be proven by science, so it's 12,000 years. Well, my name is Ramona Louise Peters, um, also known as Nosa Pocket. I'm from the Mashpee Wampanoag tribe and a member of the bear clan.
1: I'm visiting with my cousin Ramona in mid-July, sort of between waves of this pandemic. My tribe's vaccine rollout has been pretty successful and that's emboldened me to come home for the first time in nearly two years. Soon after this trip, Breakthrough cases will be on the rise, and parts of it will start to seem reckless in hindsight, including this afternoon with Ramona, an elder in our family who breathes with the help of an oxygen machine. But for now, spending time with her feels grounding. The steady hum of worry that's been following me for 18 months now goes quiet for a while as we talk about what exactly it means to be Mashpee Wampanoag.
3: Mashpee is located on Cape Cod, what's now in Cape Cod. And we stick out in the ocean the furthest east, so we're sort of, we're the first to see the sunrise.
1: This is so central to our identity that it's how we named ourselves. We're Wampanoag, or Wampanoag, Dawn People, people of the first light. And for us, this region that's now called New England is Dawn Land.
3: We are the first to see the sunrise. And a lot of the things that have come off of the Atlantic Ocean have come here to visit us. We've seen a lot of tides come and go. Um, Vikings and explorers of all sorts. uh, And eventually, the colonization of the English landed in our territory. And so we are our first encounter people.
1: If you're aware of Wampanoag people at all, there's a good chance this is why. On some November day when you were a kid, the public school system introduced you to us as the friendly and cooperative Indians who welcomed the pilgrims to our shores, taught them how to grow corn, and ushered in the formation of American society as we know it. As a little girl, Ramona says even she wasn't shielded from this cozy lie.
3: What I knew of our history, that we welcomed the Englishmen um, to live with us in a a home in our territory um, and gave them space.
1: The truth is that the Wampanoag Nation entered into a treaty with the leaders of Plymouth Colony. Usamequin, who is better known as Massasoit, was the Wampanoag leader who brokered it. He would allow these strangers to live within the boundaries of our territory in exchange for mutual protection and allyship should any other intruders land on our shores. It wasn't long before these so-called allies made it clear they'd rather just have the land themselves.
3: And then things went awry, and they went westward, and they um, harmed um, other indigenous people from here to California. As I know, uh, know that this happened, and everybody else knows this too, but... I had the feeling of responsibility, that our people were somehow responsible for allowing them to land and to prosper.
1: That we were responsible for the violence, the warfare, the cultural and linguistic erasure, the theft of billions of acres of indigenous land, and for the introduction of strange illnesses across the continent. I think that last part is a comfort to a lot of white Americans— If it was disease that caused so many indigenous people to die, you can chalk the whole thing up to a tragic but unavoidable accident. You don't have to think very hard about the genocide that got you here. But we don't quite see it that way.
3: Um, Biological warfare was known in Europe well before they came here for centuries, using disease to depopulate areas that were set for, you know, colonization or overtaking, you know, so that's not new. Um, And I don't, I don't see it as accidental.
1: Neither does Paula Peters, another community historian and another of my relatives. My traditional name
4: is Sonk and I am um, Mashpee Wampanoag. And I'm your mom. (laughs) And you had asked me about, you know, how I informed myself around This history of the Great Dying.
1: My mom was introduced to this history the same way that Ramona was, in a public school classroom. When she was in first or second grade, she remembers a teacher confidently telling the class that all the Indians in New England had died off shortly after the arrival of the Mayflower, never mind that a little Wampanoag Indian was sitting right in front of her. As an adult, my mom started doing her own research.
4: It kind of starts with all these journals of um, the travelers who came here and the settlers who came here. They were the ones who wrote everything down.
1: She has a stack of books in front of her, full of accounts from the likes of Roger Williams, Miles Standish, William Bradford, some of the earlier European colonizers who invaded Land.
4: They're very plain and matter of fact about how they brought um, illnesses, diseases to this country.
1: She picks up one book that looks to be about 500 pages long.
4: William Bradford, who was then governor of the Plymouth Colony after it had been established, traveled with um, some other of his colonists to inland to visit with Massasoit. And along the way, um, he said that they found his place to be 40 miles from hence.
1: She's quoting Bradford's journal now.
4: The soil good and the people not many, being dead and abundantly wasted in the late great mortality, which fell in all these parts about three years before the coming of the English, wherein thousands of them died.
1: Even before the formation of Plymouth Colony, between about 1616 and 1619, our people suffered an epidemic that's now sometimes known as the Great Dying. The illness was introduced by European colonizers, and it was one that had never existed on this continent before.
4: The people here had no experience with it, nor did they have any immunity to diseases that came from other places
1: and this strange illness managed to weaponize our traditional ways of healing against us
4: when people did get sick it was customary for tribal families to gather around that person who was sick and they would do ceremony and it included the community it included everyone so this illness spread very very quickly
1: Tens of thousands of Donland people were lost to the Great Dying, as many as 90% of us by some historians' estimates. In Bradford's journal, he describes a Wampanoag village decimated so forcefully that there was no one left to bury many of those who died.
4: They not being able to bury one another, their skulls and bones were found in many places lying still above the ground where their houses and dwellings had been a very sad spectacle to behold.
1: I think often of my ancestors who survived this, how horrific it must have been to witness that kind of mass death. How destabilizing to lose whole families and communities in what could have been a matter of days. I can't imagine that Bradford's sympathy would have meant much to them, especially since elsewhere in his writings, he describes the great dying as a special providence of God.
4: He wrote that it consequently made way for a foundation for the propagation and advancing of the gospel of the kingdom of Christ in those remote parts of the world, yea, though they should be, but even as stepping stones unto others for the performing of so great a work.
1: This is how our colonizers interpreted the epidemic that Wampanoag people still grieve today, as a divine gift. And we know that because they all wrote about it.
5: And it hath generally been observed that where the English come to settle, a divine
2: hand makes way for them by removing or cutting off the Indians by some raging mortal disease. For the natives, they are near all dead of the smallpox. So the Lord hath cleared our title to what we possess.
6: Say something of the Indians, there is now but few upon the island. In ...people amongst whom we live and whose land the Lord God of our fathers hath given to us for a rightful possession, have at sundry times been plotting mischievous devices against that part of the English Israel which is seated in these goings down of the sun. No man that is... Made. ...to be admired how strangely they have been decreased by the hand of God.
4: They're using their religion to justify the things that happened to Indigenous people as a result of colonization. And they had these really twisted values about who gets sick and who deserves to live and who deserves to die.
1: And they took those twisted values and carried them westward. That's what caused Ramona so much guilt and shame as a young person. This notion that we'd made way for other Indigenous people to be harmed as well.
3: It definitely affected my personality, I think. And so when I was around other natives, especially the elders, I would be, you know, kind of head down.
1: But these feelings didn't stop Ramona from spending time in other tribal communities. If anything, she says they convinced her that the fate of all indigenous people and nations was wrapped up together and that we needed to work together to protect our rights. At just 19, Ramona became a foot soldier for the American Indian Movement.
3: Well, I thought I was invincible, for goodness sakes. <laughs> so I, I remember those days. It was right out there. I mean, talk about Thrill Seeker. Yeah, so... <laughs> really? Ramona? Oh, yeah. yeah I was out there. I was very militant at one time. You know, geez, I carried guns. I was really in the movement.
1: She remembers one of the first missions that called her away from Mashpee.
3: Some Mohawks from Aquasosne um, decided to take some of their homelands back. And so they occupied a camp in the um, that used to be to the Rockefeller family. And there was a camp in the woods of the Andorodna- Adirondacks. And then some neighboring white folks decided to shoot at him to run him off and so there was a, a warriors alert called for all the tribes in the region to send warriors to help protect
1: Ramona and a friend rounded up some supplies and headed west
3: we went in a little powder blue Volkswagen bug <laughs> with some guns and some, some food and we drove over there and <laughs> And there was a little bit more shooting, and it was, um, it slowed down and started shooting back. And um, we got marched on by the Ku Klux Klan. That was the first time I ever saw hate.
1: She occupied boarding schools in Kansas, joined the front lines of AIM missions from the Great Plains to the desert southwest, all in service of tribal sovereignty and the preservation of treaty rights.
3: I felt that any tribe who wanted to, you know, live off the land and, you know, be more, you know, old style, so I thought they they had the right to. Any tribe who wants to do that has the right to, and so, yeah, I supported them with my life.
1: I wonder if that had any, um, you know, as you say, like putting your life on the line for other tribes. Also, I wonder mm-hmm. if that had anything to do with those. Feelings of guilt that you had as a young
3: person. mm. That's very well, uh, very possible. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Maybe sort of uh, making up for it.
3: Sure. You know, I hadn't thought of it, but uh, so you might have something there.
1: Maybe Ramona was offering a penance to these other nations. Maybe she was trying to get out ahead of the next great threat to Indian country and stop it in its tracks. But Mashpee always called her home. When you think of a bake, maybe you think of a fancy white people activity, something some rich tourists in pastel shorts would get up to on their Cape Cod vacation. But what you're picturing is a co-opted and whitewashed version of an oppenog, a centuries-old Dawnland tradition. I think my favorite part of putting on an openog is the ritual of it. The gathering comes first. Once your clams are dug and your lobsters are caught and you've got plenty of rocks and rockweed, you assemble a crew to prepare the dinners. In my family, this sort of thing usually happens in my mom's kitchen. <laughs> My cousin Maya is teaching her husband Stefan how to open quahogs for chowder. Maya's brother Hartman is digging through the shells, looking for the ones with deep purple streaks, good for making wampum jewelry. Some very dear family friends, Liz and Katie and Michelle, are wrapping up servings of corn, potatoes, and hot dogs in cheesecloth. My mom calls us out to the garage to show us what's inside a cooler.
4: So here's the clams. We picked them up today, and I'm soaking them Ooh, in, mix? yeah, steamers, what you steamers. Them in? Um, water and cornmeal, because they'll soak overnight in the cornmeal, and they'll eat the cornmeal, and poop out all the sand, hopefully.
1: So that water is gonna be nasty. Yeah. Oh,
4: that's a hack. That's an OIT.
1: Old Indian trick. (laughs) Like Ramona, I've spent my young adulthood in the West, serving other Indigenous people and getting to know their histories and cultures. I've always been proud to tell just about everyone I meet here where I come from. But sometimes this thing happens that I'm still not sure how to respond to. The new person I've just met says they didn't know there were any Indians that far east. Or maybe they don't seem to believe me that there are. Someone who works on Indian education standards for the state of Wyoming once looked me in the eye and said, so does that mean you didn't all get wiped out by smallpox? It's hard to describe what it feels like to be erased that way. I guess imagine managing to survive a nuclear apocalypse only to realize you've come out completely invisible on the other side. When I find myself fighting to be seen as a Wampanoag person, I wish I could show people scenes like this one. Jokes and stories spilling out of my mom's kitchen. A pile of quahogs on the counter with all my cousins huddled around it. Something ancient tying us to the land beneath our feet. A fire waiting for us in the backyard when we finish our work.
4: The clam bake. The clam bake. Clam bake. Clambake. Oh, up! Open up! Open Cheers. 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 Down the hatch.
3: Cheers.
1: I came home this summer to finally be around my family and to celebrate that we're all still here, that so far anyway, we survived this thing. But I'm also here to try and make sense of a 500-year-old loss and how the pain of that loss reverberates in our community now. For my mom, the COVID-19 pandemic has stirred up new and more complicated feelings of grief around the great dying.
4: And if we knew then what we know today, just imagine how different our lives would be. People had been able to prevent becoming sick or had survived the, the great dying in, in much stronger numbers, this would be a different world.
1: Do you, how do you feel about that? Uh, I guess that loss.
4: It does feel like a loss. It feels like um, there's something less of us here today than there would be.
1: It's true that there are parts of us that did not survive the Great Dying. And it's natural to mourn the loss of thousands of people and the traditions and ceremonies, whole dialects of our language that went quiet when they passed. I understand my mom's grief. Who would we be if so many of our Wampanoag ancestors hadn't been taken this way? At the same time, my mom loves being Wampanoag. And she raised her children to love ourselves this way, too. She taught us that Mashby is complete. It's durable. We survived an apocalypse and made ourselves whole again. That's the essence of who we are. What you're hearing right now is probably my favorite sound. It's big piles of wet rockweed being heaved onto a bed of scorching hot rocks.
2: This is going to protect the lobsters from the heat of the rock.
1: Remember how rockweed is the bubble wrap of the ocean? That popping sound is those air bubbles bursting open. The sizzle is the salty bay water inside evaporating in the heat. My uncle Rusty is the bake master today. He's shouting instructions to his brother Robert, his son Miles, and his cousin Jim. Even though they've all done this more times than they can count. First, they arrange the corn in a ring around the edge of the bake.
2: The corn will make a basket. We'll put the lobes right in the center. Susan. Uh,
1: Next, a bed sheet goes on top, followed by a plastic tarp to trap the heat and the steam. The whole rig gets held in place by some heavy rocks. Yeah, go get some good ones, uh, No, 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 no. Go get some
7: good
5: ones. Good one, right? <laughs> You don't think Mark will be a little. <laughs> <if he> <laughs> like
7: How come you're ready to
2: tight. Don't push it so tight that it goes up against the rocks. Uh, yeah.
1: As the steam builds up, the tarp inflates to form a little dome, and the food starts to cook. Then it's time to wait.
2: Uh, probably about forty-five minutes. I think, you know, well, people know when it opens.
1: Rusty has his own OIT for knowing when everything's done.
2: I have a I have a potato right there on the edge, and we open it up and stick a fork in that potato. The potato's done, everything else is done. How we know? Stick a fork in it, it's done.
1: If you know Ramona Peters, you're probably surprised to learn about this identity angst she experienced as a young person. How did that shy Wampanoag girl who moved through the world with her head down become Ramona? this pillar of our community, who knows who she is and doesn't apologize for it. She remembers one turning point, when she was a young woman visiting the Zuni Pueblo during a five-day ceremony.
3: We were there early and preparations were being made, and so I wanted to help. And I saw these old ladies out crushing corn, and they had these big baskets that they were throwing up the corn, and the howls were flying off in the wind. and So I, I thought, oh, that's, a lot, that's kind of heavy work for elders, you know. So I went over and asked to help, and they got all quiet, and they looked at me, and they said no. And I, I was like, immediately, my heart was, like, crushed. It looked like
1: I think I know the feeling that was washing over Ramona in this moment. The shame, the self-doubt.
3: I, I was like barely could walk away. I s- sort of s- sleeped away and sat down. But one of the ladies came over to me and she said, why are you so upset? And I said, "Why? Well, you know, you didn't accept me. And she said, Oh no, Jesus, uh, we are making cornmeal offerings for the kachinas. And this is our duty, our sacred duty. We can't allow anybody else to help us.
1: Ramona had internalized this as a rejection, but actually it had nothing to do with her or where she came from.
3: And she said, you have to accept yourself. (laughs) (laughs) Before anybody can accept you. And then walked away and I sit there and I'm like, whew. (laughs) Thank you, (laughs) ma'am. And that definitely changed things. And it gave me a mental opening to see things a lot differently.
1: Ramona tells me it's been a long time since she experienced this guilt over our history. I ask her if she experiences grief.
3: I do, but I know it's not reasonable. There's a certain spiritual redundancy, I guess I don't know how to put it. It's like, oh, you feel bad for your ancestors. If it's all about them and not all about me, then I need to transmute that to something for them. I would want my ancestors to feel my love for them rather than grief.
1: (laughs) For the rest of my time in Mashby, I try to take note of all the ways we tell our ancestors we love them. When word gets around that the bake is done, my whole family starts to gather around the pit. Nobody wants to miss the sweet smell of the steam rising through the air when the tarp comes off. Everybody wants a good spot in the long line for a plate. A few weeks from now, cases of the Delta variant will be surging, and it won't be safe for us to gather this way anymore. We'll all retreat back into isolation, and it will be less clear than ever when things will go back to normal. Whatever that means. For now, I think this is our way of thanking our ancestors for getting us here and for giving us the tools we need to survive.
0: was Savannah Marr. And as she says, after the Great Dying moved inland like a wave, it spread ever westward. Taylor Stagner picks up the history from here. If you are liking what you're hearing, and actually, hey, even if you don't, we would love to hear about it. Take a moment right now to leave a rating or review on your podcast app. It'll help new listeners discover the modern West so that we can keep bringing you stories about the evolving identity of the American
7: West. Hey, thanks, y'all. I'm driving about a half an hour away from Billings to Chief Plenty Coo State Park. The park is on the Crow Reservation. I'm new to Montana and I decided to take a day trip. I have never been to Crow, which is weird because it's only four hours away from where I grew up, the Wind River Reservation in Wyoming. I'm an Arapaho and Shoshone descendant and I was recently hired to cover tribal affairs for Yellowstone Public Radio. It's good to know that Montana and Wyoming have similar tastes in music. I walk into the visitor center and an elderly woman with curly, short hair going in all directions is sitting behind a desk. She's greeting some people from out of state. The room is circular and is filled with exhibits about Chief Plenty Hello,
5: sir. Where are you from?
7: Wisconsin.
5: Oh, dear. Well, welcome to Chief Plenty State Park. After you visit in here, you can go to the Chief's House, and uh, beyond that's Medicine Springs, beyond that is the Chief's Orchard, and then there's a walking trail around that stops at the Chief's grave.
7: Okay. So, Bernadette Smith works day. at Chief Plenty Cou State we'll Park. She's Crow and has lived on the reservation all of her life. I come up, introduce myself, hello, I'm a journalist, new in town and she immediately asks me to come sit behind the counter with her, and we get to talking. She gives me her recipe for bitter root pudding.
5: There's a oh, lot of oh, bitter root, you know, they used to go dig bitter root, the Montana State Farm, and make a pudding of that especially, um, peel it and then dry it, take out the heart and then dry it, and then in the wintertime make a pudding out of that, and that was supposed to keep you healthy.
7: Bernadette says the summer has been busy. She sees people from all over the world and loves telling visitors stories from the place she's called home her whole life. Sitting next to her, she relayed a story about Medicine Springs, a special pool of fresh spring water in the backyard of Chief Plinicou's house. He was said to drink from the spring every day. Bernadette sets up the story she wants to tell me. It's the 1950s, and Bernadette's family lives a few miles away from another family whose little girl falls ill with polio. Polio is an awful disease that attacks neurons in the brainstem and spinal cord.
5: But there was an elderly Indian crow lady here that told them, told her folks that uh, she would take her and. uh, cure her she had the ability to cure her and she was there 30 days and the little girl come out of it without any polio or without any limp that mud from the springs cured her and the family was just so happy
7: The water from Medicine Springs is used in ceremonies and was part of the reason Chief coup picked this part of the reservation to live on. The park is special, you can feel it when you come here. Bernadette is overjoyed to share her knowledge with people from all over the world and says one way to keep stories alive is to tell them. I explain I'm working on a history of disease and healing in Indian Country and she says like most indigenous communities. The COVID-19 pandemic has hit the Crow Nation hard. Traditional medicines and whole ways of life, pre-settler contact, have been lost. Thousands of cultures the world over have been snuffed out in the wake of colonialism and genocide. A whole visitor center of knowledge doesn't even scratch the surface, and it's hard to conceptualize. But I'm going to try. More than that, I hope you think about how resilient indigenous people are. I took a class a few years back from a professor at the University of Wyoming. I really wanted to better know indigenous history. I thought I knew all the highlights, but really wanted to dig in. Who knew that I would keep playing scenes from that class over and over in my head years after that semester? I think something in that class galvanized me to take the path I'm on now, reporting on tribal news, tell more Native stories, and pursue dismantling all aspects of colonialism. Maybe that's a big ask, but the class definitely helped me see my future was in telling stories. The professor taught us about pre-contact all the way through the Wounded Knee Massacre in 1890. Afterward, the professor and I stayed in contact, and he even advised me through the end of my undergraduate studies. He wrote one of my letters of recommendation to graduate school.
6: Anyhoo, yes, this is me, Jeff Means, Ph.D., Oklahoma. Devastatingly handsome, brilliant, funny. Don't use that. I will sue you.
7: (laughs) He also has a great sense of humor. Professor Jeff Means is Oglala Lakota, related to Russell Means of the American Indian Movement. Jeff wanted to go to college as a young man, but couldn't afford to, so he joined the Army.
6: Okay, first of all, I have to slap you, because I was a Marine. Okay, I'm still a Marine. (laughs) And Army? (laughs) Oh, wow.
7: (laughs) Excuse me, Professor. The Marines. I wanted Professor Means to walk me through what he taught me in class, and to lay out what role disease and medicine had in the colonization of the Americas.
6: You know, the numbers are probably uh, pretty accurate when, if you hear the number about 90 percent, 90 percent of native population was probably wiped out by disease um, during the process of uh, colonization by Europeans. And a lot of this happened well before Europeans got there.
7: Professor Means says a lot of the records that historians use to estimate the number of indigenous people inhabiting the continent were not accurate. He says the priests and explorers who wrote many primary sources were seeing ghosts of the original population.
6: In other words, you know, nobody'd been here before. There was, you know, all just open, free land. Well, the, the reality is it's a widowed land. It's a land that Um, saw its human population devastated. In that process, it sure allowed Europeans a much more free reign um, over uh, their ideas of expansion, colonization, etc.
7: Discussions like this always feel insanely personal. When indigenous people talk about colonization, it's not in the abstract. Professor Means goes on to talk about first contact and the diseases that ravaged trade routes from coast to coast. Indigenous people had no natural immunity to some of these diseases. And on purpose or by accident, settlers cleared a lot of the continent, and many saw it as divine intervention. Savannah was right. Early settlers thought that God had killed a whole continent for them. Manifest Destiny is defined as the 19th century concept that westward expansion of the Americans was justified and inevitable. Manifest is from the Latin Manifestus. Incidentally, sharing the festus with the Latin infestus, which means swarm over in large numbers, attacking parasitically. That's what it felt like for indigenous people as colonizers arrived. An infestation. The push to move indigenous tribes out of the way intensified.
6: That kind of belief, uh, that that confidence, that just sheer assuredness of one's superiority really is at the root of European expansion during this period. Um, The Europeans are moving out. They have absolutely no qualms about stealing, robbing. I mean, there was two popes that uh, basically said, go forth and steal and kill and and rob um, from all of these non-Christians. Take their land. And this is the pope, Saying this, okay? Could you imagine a pope, you know, saying, Yeah, go forth, intrepid champions of Christianity, and kill these people?
7: And manifest destiny has left its bloody footprint all over American healthcare. It started all the way back then. In 1830, the first piece of legislation Andrew Jackson passed as president of the United States was the Indian Removal Act. You've probably heard of the Trail of Tears. The health and welfare of indigenous populations were not a concern of the US.
6: So you've got a malnourished group of people who are having to exert themselves heavily on this this march west. And at the same time, you know, you just ma- that just makes you wide open to disease. The elements are, are getting to you, everything else. So all different kinds of, of uh, diseases struck. They got hit with cholera. I mean, it was just like one after the other. And, you know, this, this is going to lead to so many deaths. You know, there were probably maybe 100,000 Native Americans still in the South They got relocated. Probably about half of them were going to die on the way.
7: Forced removal of indigenous populations to make way for white settlers was only a temporary solution. The time between the Indian Removal Act and the implementation of the reservation system is often characterized in Westerns. John Wayne stars in 1956's The Searchers.
5: From
2: the thrilling pages of life rides a man you must fear and respect. A man whose unconquerable will and boundless determination carved a lusty, rough, and boisterous slice of history called The Searchers.
7: Films like this portray the West as untamed and lawless. Characterizing and the land as a no man's land and had to be taken and shaped into something civilized, gone, resembling all all European society.
2: Never thinking of himself as martyred, never thinking of himself as brave.
5: So we'll find him in the end, I promise you. We'll find him. Here is a
7: story of a man. But it wasn't a no man's land, it was a land with innumerable complex societies that were already land. flourishing.
2: Here is drama of great love and aching loneliness.
7: Western films like this one capture the attitude of settlers of the era, never acknowledging the rich breadth of indigenous knowledge that existed and was subverted to push West.
5: What do you want me to do, draw
7: picture? Spell it out? Don't ever ask me! In 1851, Congress passed the Indian Appropriations Act that created the reservation system. Tribal nations were coerced into signing treaties with the U.S. government and put them on reservations that the U.S. made into open-air prisons, where resources like food and health care were used as ways to control tribes to coerce the indigenous into assimilation.
6: Um, well, Native Americans are, you know, herded together in very small areas, um, which can't support themselves economically. Their political power is completely gone, um, and All the things that used to uh, make a man a man and a woman a woman that gave them importance and something to look forward to in life were pretty much gone. And that included, you know, health care. I mean, uh, the United States was not really interested in providing uh, a lot of health care. The
7: 1855 treaty with the Makah tribe specifically promised health care, saying the U.S. government, quote, shall furnish medicine and advise to the sick and shall vaccinate them. End quote. Indian country assimilation efforts were now putting indigenous children into residential schools, and real medicine men were called heathenish by the Secretary of Interior in 1883, and blamed these medicine men for families' reluctancy to send their children off to faraway schools.
6: And what happened is Native Americans practiced their own health care, which was uh, pretty good actually. Um, but once the United States um, got complete control over Native American nations, they forbid Native Americans from practicing their kind of medicine. They saw that as not acceptable, savage, etc. It's the same thing with, you know, trying to forbid them from having their religions or their language or anything else that was seen as backward and uncivilized.
7: Consequences for practicing traditional medicine included having your family's rations of food taken away or imprisonment. The Department of Interior's 1883 Code of Indian Offenses outlined restricted traditional practices carried out by medicine men. This was to better assimilate natives into white Western culture, something natives across the continent were hesitant of and settlers could not understand why. Indigenous medicines were known to be very effective for common ailments, and how to use certain techniques were important to the health of tribal communities. In an oral history from the 1970s, Myrtle Lincoln, a Southern Arapaho woman used to treat swelling with a plant that looked like milkweed. She said you could mix it with a type of fat and the swelling would go down overnight. Or Bernadette's story about the little girl with polio. Indian countries filled with cures that modern science is only now starting to appreciate.
6: Because it was always assumed, again, because of the superiority of Western culture, that Native Americans would see the awesomeness of, you know, white culture and voluntarily abandon their own identity and culture and join in. And when that doesn't happen, then the United States, as it gains more power, and this occurs over the 18, the later 1800s up to 1900, then the United States begins to make it part of American policy to force Native Americans into to assimilate into American culture.
7: It was 1978 when the American Indian Religious Freedom Act was signed. Dances and medical knowledge could be practiced out in the open, but by then many people who carried knowledge had died or were understandably reluctant to share that knowledge. The forced assimilation of indigenous people into American life has catastrophic effects on the health of indigenous people. Lost traditional teachings few or no doctors on reservations, low funding, no transportation.
6: And this had a really detrimental effect on Native American health. I mean, first of all, they're usually eating foods that they weren't familiar with. They were getting rations of flour and um, other I mean, Indian fried bread basically comes from the fact that they were issued lard, butter, wheat, you know, flour, etc. So what do you do with that? Okay? Well, you make this this fried bread, right? Um, But it's not what indigenous people ate, so there's problems with that.
7: Often tribes on reservations could not leave. Even though the treaties that the tribes were coerced to sign said that there would be a doctor provided on reservations, many tribal communities never got a physician. When we talk about treaties being broken, that includes the lack of resources provided to tribes to adequately take care of the sick. Lots of people misunderstand indigenous health care when the government is obligated to give this care in exchange for all the land that they gave up. Professor Means acknowledges that things are getting better, but until tribal nations have autonomy over their own destinies, it's going to be more of the same.
6: Because, I mean, we should understand that the colonial period in American history ended for white people in 1776. It has never ended for Native Americans. Native Americans are still colonized. Okay, Native nations are still under the control of a foreign government, etc. And so until they become fully autonomous, fully independent, um, etc., um, that's, you know, that's going to be the situation um, for Native Americans. It's an uphill struggle.
7: I visited Bernadette again at the end of July. She tells me that she still loves working at the visitor center at Chief Plenty Q State Park. Bernadette pulls out a binder of pictures, portraits of the 12 people who gave stories to go along with the exhibits in the visitor center. Some very old, but many very young. All of them have given stories that you can listen to as you walk around the exhibits. That's a great picture
5: of you. Yeah, right, thank you. (laughs) But uh, this isn't that old. I don't think it's 20 years old, but they're all, they're gone. That's really
7: sad. Bernadette says that and looks at me, tears brimming, and I'm really glad that I made this trip. She says that a lot of people here meet untimely deaths on the reservation. And that's the legacy of Manifest Destiny. As I left, I turned into Pryor, Montana, to head back to Billings. I flipped on some buffy St. Marie. I couldn't help but think that COVID had proved that indigenous health was not a priority of the U.S. government. So it's no wonder that tribal communities took matters into their own hands.
0: So, Taylor Stagner just told us all about the treaties that the U.S. government signed promising to bring medicine and doctors, and how, as the 19th century came to an end, none of those things had ever arrived. Well, in the next episode, one young woman from the Omaha tribe in the 1890s decided to do something about it.
4: It has always been a desire of mine to study medicine. Ever since I was a small girl, for even then I saw
1: the need of my people for a good physician.
0: We'll also hear about the fight in the mid-20th century to create a real healthcare system for Indigenous people. Enough. It's part two of Shall Furnish Medicine. Next time on the Modern West. Did you ever sit in a classroom and hear inaccurate lessons about Indigenous history? Share your insights with us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter at Modern WestPod. I'm Melody Edwards. Today's episode was produced by Savannah Marr and Taylor Stagner. Anna Rader is our digital producer. Our editorial team is Cooper McKim, Noah Greenspan, Charles Fournier, and Sarah Ann Leverett. History reenactment by Sam Newmarch, Ben Slater, and Brick Burkus. Our illustrator is Zach Kana. Music by Sean Francis and his band, Pegasus. Also, Blue Dot Sessions. Our theme song is by Screen Door Porch. This series was produced in partnership with the Pulitzer Center. The Modern West is a production of PRX and Wyoming Public Media. One of our goals is to get a dialogue flowing about the stories that we're telling. We're hoping that you'll join the conversation. So connect with us on social media and let us know what your thoughts are, whether you agree with what you're hearing or not. We're at Modern West Pod on Instagram, Facebook and Twitter. That's Modern West Pod.